Good morning. Bring you greetings from Warner Robins, Georgia, the land of peaches, pecans, and nuts. And uh, sometimes I have to be careful when I tell people I'm fitting in because it's the land of nuts, uh, peanuts that is, so I don't want to say too much about myself in, uh, in saying uh, uh, I fit in there. But I uh, want to bring you greetings from the congregation there. Appreciate the elders there and allowing me to be here this morning. Appreciate this congregation so much. It's hard uh, to step through the doors, and as I was sitting there this morning and Katrina started sniffling, I said, what's wrong, honey? She says, it's home. It's home. I think about the impact this congregation has had upon my soul over the years, and uh, we came here in... 2000, and we were fresh out of college, and uh, no children yet. We had no children yet, and uh, just starting our way, making our way. What a great place to begin our our journey! And so we thank this congregation. As Bob was talking in Bible class this morning about being an engineer school, aren't you glad uh, he's not an engineer? And uh, what a great uh, great period of time we've had in this congregation, and. The Bible talks about in Revelation about how blessed are those who die in the Lord, they may rest from their labors, their works do follow them. When I think about this congregation, I see in your faces and in my memories of this congregation treasures that I can open up and go back to. Uh, One of the reasons why I preach today is because of the influence of this good group of people. Influence upon my my son's lives, and uh, when they go to other congregations, they're comparing them with Orange Street, and uh, this is where they this is where they were born. This is what they're used to. So, in your faces and in in your legacy, I see uh, a lot of treasures in, uh, for my own soul. When I want to go back to some happy places, I think about the good works that you do, the fires that you've kept lit in uh, in this area for so many years. Just want you to know I love you, and I'm uh, I'm honored to to be before you this morning, and uh, and I thank you for the impression, uh, the way that God was working on me all through those years, His His, uh, His providence. Just love you all so much. In the late 1600s, there was a woman by the name of Lucy Molyneux. It was November 24th, 1678, and she lived in Dublin, Ireland, with her husband William. And as Lucy left church one morning, she began to have seizures. It was November of 1678. By December of that year, she was beginning to lose her vision. By January of the following year, she had completely lost her vision. Now, Lucy and her husband, William, they only lived into their 40s. But what's interesting is that William, William, her husband, had a fascination with a philosopher by the name of John Locke. And in his uh, appreciation of John Locke and in his uh, uh, respect for John Locke, uh, William, too, was kind of of the philosophical bent. What we see throughout history and moving from the 1600s into the 1700s, into the Enlightenment, into our day and age, is that William Molyneux has had an impression in the philosophical world on what's known as sense perception. That is, unseen. Now, it started with his wife who developed this blindness. But William would ask questions like this. What happens if a person has been blind all their life, and then all of a sudden they get their sight? 
What's their point of reference? What's it like for a person who hasn't seen at all and all of a sudden there's colors for them? Or what's it like when they open their eyes and for the first time they, they see their loved ones face to face? What does their brain do with things like that? The philosophical jargon aside, what's fascinating in our day and age is that people can go from being legally blind to having their sight. There's a condition known as Tursen syndrome, where an individual can have bleeding in their eyes and doctors can go in and, and do a surgical procedure and they can go from being legally blind to having 20-20 vision. There are conditions and cases in India, a, a, a project known as the Prakash Project, where they go on and work on children, teenage boys or, or girls who, who are born with cataracts and all their life they can't see and all of a sudden a surgeon can do procedures on their eyes and they, they are blind, but, but now they can see. With God in our lives, he wants to take us from being blind to seeing. He wants us to have 20-20 vision. He wants us to have spiritual clarity in our lives. And so the question that I have before you this morning is this. Do you see? And when I ask you the question, do you see, do you see spiritually according to the word of God and according to the ways of God? I wanted to examine some passages this morning and think about this idea of having clarity in our lives, having clarity in our lives and seeing clearly. In John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus is in this discussion and he's healed a man who is blind and they're asking a, a questions about Jesus. How isn't this man a sinner, accusing Jesus of being a sinner? And there's this response, I know that I was blind, but now I see. And how is it that a person can go from being blind to now seeing? And Jesus would say towards the end of that chapter, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see, seeing with Jesus means blindness to a certain aspect and facet to our world. Seeing according to the world means being blind to Jesus. There is no middle ground between these two differing views. And what Jesus wants us to see today is to see according to his will. How do we do it? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, it, says, it should say 1 in verse 13. It says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If we want to see according to God's holy will, if we want to see according to scriptures, Paul would tell his son in the faith, Timothy, to follow the pattern. Follow the pattern of sound words. I want you to see in Scripture, as we trace this idea throughout the book, I hope you'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, and I want you to see, according to Scripture, what Paul wanted his son in the faith, Timothy, to see. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 
1 and verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You see, there's a pattern here. We can go later in the the chapter and see where Paul is urging Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words. But there's a pattern that begins in the beginning of this very book. It's a pattern where Paul cites his ancestors, the faithful Jews, the remnant of the Hebrews that continued to persist along the faithful road. And as that faithful road would progress in time, he cites a couple other examples. A grandmother, a mother, and now in you, Timothy. When we think about a pattern, this this pattern is handed down. This pattern is revealed in in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy, what is the nature of this pattern? Well, according to the first part of this chapter, it's a pattern that's revealed. It's a pattern that's handed down through the Jewish ancestors that now exist in his grandmother and his mother and now exist in Timothy. Here is a pattern that possesses power. He says very specifically, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In this pattern is a precise way that God squashes out hopelessness, fear, fright. It's the integrity of the pattern. And he's going to lay that out through scripture. He will say in verse Eight, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This pattern is the gospel. Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Here is a powerful pattern. It's beyond mere human patterns of blueprints and prototypes and examples and recipes and all of these patterns that we see throughout. Here is a powerful pattern that will take you from this world to the next. There's power in this pattern. Notice verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This pattern. It reveals a holy calling. It reveals a certain purpose. It reveals a certain grace and favor of God. This isn't just any old pattern. This isn't just any old blueprint or prototype or recipe. Or This is a divine pattern. You see Paul trying to stir the soul of Timothy. Here's what you got, Timothy. Here's what God has given you. Here's what God gave our ancestors. Here's what God gave your grandmother. Here's what God gave your mother. Here's what God is giving you, Timothy. It's a pattern. It's undeniable from the text. Then in verse 10, in which now have been manifested, he says, 
through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This pattern reveals the life of Jesus Christ. And this pattern demonstrates for us a final death blow to death. It's a conquering of death. We can open the pages of our newspaper on a Sunday morning or go to an obituary section and we can see where a black cloud of death overshadows another day, another moment, another ticking of the clock. And yet here's a pattern that says Jesus has been victorious over that. Death has given a final blow. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The pattern is convicting. The pattern is persuasive. The pattern is empowering. It's a divine pattern. It's a revealed pattern. It's a good news pattern. It's a pattern with many dynamic elements. Paul says that when all is said and done about this pattern, it is convicting. He says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's an entrusted pattern. On and on we could go with the descriptions. And then verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good posit entrusted to you. Paul is saying it's a pattern. You see in the prophets and you see in Micah and you see in Habakkuk and you see in Isaiah where they could reveal this message that God placed upon their hearts. I saw the vision, they'll say. And yet, here is this entrusted pattern to Timothy. It's a pattern. We can't get away from it. Why do I emphasize that? Why am I spending so much time on that? I want you to see in Scripture and notice that there's this word for pattern that appears only in two places in the New Testament. It appears once in the first letter to Timothy. It appears the second time in what we've been reading this morning here in 2 Timothy. I want you to see that in one instance, it's follow the pattern of sound words. What does that mean? What's it mean, follow the pattern of sound words? The pattern here is this Greek word that means model. It means prototype. It means, and it's translated elsewhere, example. Follow this example. It's of sound words. What sound words mean? It means healthy words. It means things that are upbuilding, things that encourage, things that edify. Follow the pattern of sound words. The second place this is used, I want you to store up this because it'll play later in the application of this lesson. The second place where this is used is in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. Jesus Christ and his perfect patience as an example. 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. Here's the prototype. Here's the standard. Here's the blueprint, if you will. In 1 Timothy It's the example of Jesus Christ that he's referencing. 
And I want you to see that it's one Greek word in two different contexts. I want to keep emphasizing in 2 Timothy. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. I want you to see this picture, and then we'll, we'll make a final point of application. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice in your Bibles, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Notice a pattern, an example, according to the promise. Here's a pattern that reveals a promise by Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of, Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? He's saying, entrust this pattern to faithful men, Timothy. There's a promise in this pattern. Entrust this faithful uh, pattern to other people, Timothy. Skip down in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Timothy, here's a pattern. Here's a pattern that's going to keep you from exhausting yourself and wearing yourself out in quarrels and just endless debates and harangues that steal your energy and snuff out the power of the gospel. Here's a pattern that's going to keep you hemmed in between on the straight and narrow way, not too far to the right, not too far to the left. It's a pattern that's going to keep you centered you don't have to spend your days, Timothy, in, in a pattern where we're just arguing endlessly over things. It's a pattern that will keep you from quarreling. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. What's Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, as you have seen my life, and you, as you have seen my attempts at following Christ, emulating Christ, acting like Christ, teaching like Christ, sacrificing my body for Christ, it's a pattern, Timothy. Follow those things. It's a pattern. Verse 14, chapter 3. But as for you, you there's Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You've learned this pattern, Timothy. You've learned the sacred writings. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy, what's going to equip you? to face every storm in life, every challenge, every bump in the road, every quarrel, every high place, every moment of exaltation, every valley that you face, Timothy, what's the writings of God? It's a pattern. It's a clear pattern. Do you want to see clearly with 2020 vision in the year 2020. Follow the pattern of sound words. 
Follow Christ Jesus, your example. He's the model. He's the prototype. Why do I spend so much time? Why did Paul spend so much time trying to teach Timothy about the pattern? It's interesting, in our religious world today, there are people in the larger circles of theology who deny a certain pattern in Scripture. There's people who will take the book of Acts. They'll read passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which talks about the necessity to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They'll read those passages, and they'll put them in in opposition to a passage like Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, where it says, as many as heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. They'll position these texts against each other. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 4, as many as believe. So they say, see, one, uh, if, if, if there's not a pattern because one says belief and one says repent and be baptized. And they'll, they'll, put, these, they'll put these passages in distinction instead of seeing that they, in fact, are complementary and that they are part of the same one pattern gospel message. There are people in the religious world that say acts, and often what they're trying to do is get away from baptism in those multiple, uh, multiplied passages throughout that book. But they'll say that acts doesn't represent a pattern. That's in the larger world of Christendom. But then there are those even within the church who have given up on any pattern. I want you to read from a man by the name of Rubel Shelley. Rubel Shelley wrote a book in 1990, published it in 1990. It was a book called Prepare to Answer. It's a book that tries to take people from unbelief to belief. It's interesting in the life of Rubel, this transition that was made throughout his life. I want you to read I want you to see and hear with your own ears what he says in this book. Prepare to answer, a defense of the Christian faith. He said, there's nothing wrong with thinking, asking hard questions, and demanding rigorous examinations of claims. It is not ungodly, pagan, or wicked to ask for justification of Christianity's truth claims. And there's certainly no virtue in denying the doubt or confusion that may arise in one's mind. The only honest thing to do with a doubt is to surface it face it squarely, and attempt to resolve it. Would you amen, Ruble, on this statement? Allow the doubt to arise and tackle it. Take the pattern. Take scripture and address these uncertainties that you have in your life. Ruble keeps speaking in his book. He says in a chapter called Why People Reject Christianity, he says, just as when... He preached in the synagogue and argued his case from Scripture. Paul had mixed results. Some turned up their noses at his presentation. Others expressed the desire to study further with him. And a few became believers. Rubel's saying that there's a, a multiplicity of responses to the gospel message, to the pattern that's taught. Then he says, Christians must get over. Christians must get over our reluctance, reluctance to enter the marketplace and must begin pressing the case for the saving work of Jesus Christ among our secularized contemporaries. Few of them will come to our assemblies. We must go where they are. Would you amen, Rubel, on that? We must go to them. 
They may not come to us. We must go to them. We must take the truth of the gospel to them. He continues, armed with truth and careful scholarship, we must be willing to enter into dialogue with anyone who will join the discussion. Surrender to Christ and filled with his spirit, we must present the Christian faith Praying fervently and believing in the power of the gospel, we must wait for the Christian message to have its effect. Some will sneer and others will be only mildly curious, but some will be saved. Rubel, in that day and age, 30 years ago, was saying that this pattern, it has the power to take people from death to life. It has the power to take people from disbelief to believe. And we've got to go to them. We've got to get out there. He says at the end of his book, this book in 1990, the ultimate purpose of Prepare to Answer will be achieved only if it helps some individual move from unbelief to salvation, to sonship, to new life in Christ. What's Rubel teaching back then, 30 years ago? He's teaching that the example of Jesus Christ and the truth of the pattern, they're priceless. You roll forward in Rubel's life 13 years and to a day and age, 2003, he writes a book with a man by the name of John John York, and it's called The Jesus Proposal. Listen to Rubel 13 years later. There's a chapter in this book called The Conditioning of Modernity. They write, the search in scripture for some sort of church pattern, when you think about it, is a culturally conditioned response to the biblical text in the new world of science and industrialization. The 19th and 20th centuries Century search for patterns assumed a blueprint model for everything that was good. Draw up the business plan, produce the architectural drawings for the house of the skyscraper. Everything has a structure that we are able to figure out. Surely God's design is there for the taking in scripture. Thus, when you even find the word pattern in scripture, that must be the plan. So why did so many architects end up with so many different blueprints, all claiming to be the only suitable plan? What are they saying 13 years later? They're saying, you know, a pattern. Rubel used to believe in one. Here he argues, you know, this whole idea of a blueprint in scripture, an architectural <laughs> prototype, a, a business plan and scripture. That's the product of living in the 19th and 20th centuries. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? They say the reason why we go to scripture to find the very words of eternal life, it's because we're living on the heels of the 19th and 20th century. You can go to one verse of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. And you can read that with your own eyes. And follow it with your own heart. 
Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. Timothy wasn't aware of the 19th century. He wasn't aware of 20th century industrialization. He wasn't aware of all the dynamics and details of architectural plans. But Paul very clearly, very precisely, very succinctly says, Timothy, my ancestors, your mother, your grandmother, the prophets, my example, all of those things, Timothy, follow them as they follow Christ. Rubel continues, and York continue in their book, we also recognize that such an identity is not a matter of human performance or skillful human reasoning. It is the gift of the living God who still is active in our world and in our lives. We find our identity and security not in the American economy and our growing collection of stuff, not in the pride of her own performance or the arrogance of our superior intellects, not, watch what he says, not in a particular name brand of church, but in the mind of Christ. We find our places in the continuing story of Jesus, understanding that we have been called to be Jesus, to be the living Christ in our world. We live in the gospel accounts of Jesus in the lives of the early Christians, not to restore an ancient pattern. Not to restore an ancient pattern, they write, but to understand our own calling to Jesus today. As the earliest Christians were empowered to be Jesus in the first century, we are now empowered to be Jesus in the 21st century. Now, mind you, Rubel Shelley, PhD, Vanderbilt University, a scholar, a logician, an individual who understands logic and could delve into all sorts of different types of logic. 1990, I hope I can help people go from unbelief to belief. I hope if this book has any merit, it'll help people go from unbelief to belief. In 2013, ah, there's no pattern. Just follow Jesus. There's so much religious division in the world. Just follow Jesus. Just unite on the claims of following Jesus. One word. Two passages. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words, Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words. 1 Timothy. Both one Greek word appears only two times in the New Testament. One refers to the example of Jesus Christ. One refers to the pattern to be followed in him. You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a scholar to know that Rubel has left the faith. Rubel has clearly left the faith. When he says and when him and York write together that there's just not a blueprint anymore. It's a product of industrialization. Is it true that there's lots of religious division in the world? Is it true that there's a church on every corner? Absolutely. 
But that's not God's fault. God's not the product of all that division. Every religious teaching either comes from God or it comes from man. And because Ruble and York see a lot of division out in the religious world, they say, well, we just need to unite around Jesus. But Paul, as he would instruct his son in the faith, Timothy, says you can't have one without the other. You can't have the man without the plan. You can't have the person without the pattern. Because what you end up with, according to Rubel and York, is this fuzzy mystical Jesus. This Jesus that in some religious circles looks like this. And in other religious circles looks like that. But according to scripture, there's absolute perfect unity between Jesus the person and Jesus the pattern. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Only God incarnated in the flesh in Jesus Christ, taking upon himself the form of a man. He's the only accountable human being in all of history that we can all say amen to everything he taught, but also everything that he did. He's the example. He is the prototype. He is the blueprint. You want to see and have 2020 vision in 2020? Follow the pattern of sound words and know the example of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can become one by hearing the word, believing the word, repenting of your sins, confessing the sweet name of Jesus, and being baptized for the remission of your sins. There might be someone here today who's decided that today is the day of salvation. They want to put on Christ in baptism. They want to have 2020 clear spiritual vision. And you want to follow Christ, and you want to follow your heart as your heart follows the word of God. Maybe you're here today, and you want to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you want to make the good confession. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to do that, invite you to step out in the aisle and, and do that. But maybe you're here this morning, and you've not lived in a faithful manner, and you really want to see clearly according to Christ. You want to come forward and ask the church to pray for you. For any reason you need to come, won't you come as we stand and sing?